Annie, warm welcome to First Move. Great to be back with you once again. I have so much to catch up on. And as always, a frantic first move today to kick things off, including an exclusive interview with David Malpass, the outgoing president of the World Bank Group. Malpass announcing Wednesday that he's stepping down early, almost a year before his five-year term expires, in fact. A tumultuous term at the helm of the financing institution that included support for the covid 19 pandemic, record financing for climate change, the war, of course, in Ukraine, and just this month, the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. The World Bank already pledging a near $1.8 billion for emergency assistance to Turkey alone. We'll discuss the need of those impacted as well as the first of its kind, I believe, global roundtable discussing debt relief. It's taking place next week on the sidelines of the G20 summit. And crucially, it includes big nations like India, China and private creditors too. It also comes at a pivotal moment for the global economy with China's reopening gathering steam, Europe hoping to avoid recession and the United States everything seemingly on the rise at least for the moment too. I'm not just talking about balloons or UFOs either. R is for retail sales, up a blistering 3% pace in January. I for inflation, just released data shows prices at the factory gate coming in hotter than expected last month. S is for stimulus, fatter social security checks to compensate for higher prices are in the mail, with state and local governments across the United States flush with cash to spend too. And E, of course, for employment, US jobs growth blazing a trail at the start of 2023 too. Difficult to forecast a hard landing when so much of the economy is expanding. The new term du jour is in fact no landing with the economy growing steadily even in the face of higher borrowing costs. We will discuss later on in the show. For now though on global markets, US stock market futures lower, reacting negatively to that disappointingly hot new inflation read. As you can see, European stocks are pulling back too. The FTSE is the outperformer over in the UK. It hit record highs earlier on in the session. Wow, much to discuss over the next hour or so. But first, we do begin in Ukraine, where local officials say the country suffered a massive missile attack by Russia overnight. Let's get straight to CNN senior international correspondent David McKenzie, who joins us now from Kyiv. David, good to have you with us. Can you define massive for me and how well did the Ukrainian air defence defenses hold up in the face of this? Well, they held up They held up pretty well, Julia, and certainly this is uh, a relatively regular occurrence here in Ukraine. At least 36 missiles and other ordnance flung at Ukraine in the overnight hours. About half of those were taken down by Ukrainian air defenses. But uh, in the east of where I'm standing, certainly, uh, tragically, a woman was killed. You see the giant crater uh, from one of those strikes in civilian areas clearly uh, hit by those Russian missiles. But at this point, it does seem that Ukrainians have been able to stop at least some of these missiles getting in, though they did say it struck critical infrastructure, in their words, uh, particularly to the west of where I'm standing uh, in around Lviv. Julia? And David, um, one of the other stories that I know you personally have been following is that the Ukrainians have accused Russia of abducting thousands of Ukrainian children, something, of course, that, that Russia denies. But as I say, I know you've been looking at this. What have you found? 
Well, I want to show you this video released by the Kremlin, and it's quite, uh, uh, it's very fascinating, in fact, the timing of this. This is Vladimir Putin praising the work of uh, Maria Lvova Belova. Now, she, according to the Russians, has been instrumental in getting children away from the danger zone in the Donbass, in the eastern part of the country, for years, and also putting them up for adoption when their parents are killed or missing. Uh, but uh, the EU and the US and researchers have a very different opinion of this woman. They say she's instrumental in separating children, thousands of them, from Ukrainian parents and setting up camps where they are stuck for many months sometime. We followed one mother who was desperately trying to get her children back. Weeks ago, we first met Tetiana Vlaiko in Kyiv in a shelter for displaced families. All of the mothers here separated from their children by the trauma of war. Emotions overwhelmed me when Lilia left. When I realized what was happening, it terrified me. All I wanted was the best for my child at the time. Her 11-year-old daughter, Lilia, stuck in a Russian camp in occupied Crimea. All the lessons are in Russian. At first glance, the retreat seemed like any other summer camp. But the loyalty expected from Ukrainian children is crystal clear. Part of what a new Yale University study calls systematic re-education efforts. But Tetiana and Lilia's story begins a year ago. Their hometown of Kherson fell quickly to advancing Russian troops. Within days, the occupiers began a campaign to Russify the population, often coercing thousands of parents like Tetiana to send their kids to the camps. But when Ukrainian forces took back her son in November, Tetiana's daughter was on the wrong side of the front line. We provide a rescue mission for children who were abducted and now in Russia Federation and in Crimea. Mikolo Kaleba, the founder of Save Ukraine, declined to say exactly how they negotiate their entry into enemy territory, just that the mothers can't do it on their own. It's impossible to communicate with any Russians because uh, you can ask these mothers, they don't want to give children back. But Tatiana was ready to take the risk. I'm worried, of course. You cannot even imagine my emotions inside. It's fear and terror. It's emotional that I could see her soon, and this is a big deal for me. Eleven mothers and one father, putting on a brave face, but theirs is a perilous route. From Ukraine by road to Poland, into Russian ally Belarus, through the Russian Federation, to occupied Crimea. We were counting every kilometer on approach. I could feel it with every cell in my body. I was very emotional when we were closer and closer. Save Ukraine spent many months planning this moment. <laughs> Reuniting families shattered by war, returning children who just wanted to go home to Ukraine. Once I entered to meet, it was an outburst of emotions. Once we embraced, it was like a great weight lifted. In the end, they gave up the children willingly. But Save Ukraine says that hundreds, perhaps thousands, remain. Our two countries are at war, says Tetiana, but they are good people everywhere. Well, Julia, you look at those emotional reunions. Uh, many of the mothers were very conflicted as to whether to send their children to these camps. Some did 
very willingly because it got them out of danger. But now you have this awful scenario uh, borne out by our reporting and studies done by Yale that there are many, many children. The most serious allegation is that there are children whose parents are alive who are being put up for adoption. Uh, that's at least according to that report. Uh, the uh, Russian embassy in Washington is rubbishing the report, calling it absurd. It claims and it maintains that this is just to try and keep children and their families safe in a time of war. But I can tell you that organization, Save Ukraine, is trying to organize more rescue missions, reunification mission, uh, missions, whatever you want to call it, uh, to reunite parents with their children. Julia? A critically important context and um, vitally important story. Um, David McKenzie, thank you for bringing that to us today. Okay, let's go to Turkey and Syria now, where more than 42,000 people have now lost their lives as a result of last week's earthquake. A short time ago, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg met with the Turkish President Recep Erdogan to offer his condolences and highlighted that NATO is setting up temporary housing for survivors in Hatay province and will airlift tens of thousands of tents to Turkey over the coming days. We're now on day 10 of those rescue efforts, with crews battling near-freezing temperatures to still try and locate survivors. The latest miracle rescue, a 17-year-old pulled from the rubble after surviving being trapped for 248 hours. Elite search and rescue teams from around the world are helping the search and recovery effort. At the same time, civil engineers from the United States are helping the Turkish government assess which of the buildings are still standing are still safe to return to. Sarah Seidner has more. Rescue teams from around the world attack the piles of crushed buildings, sometimes with brute force, and other times as carefully as possible. It's a delicate balance trying to save any possible life underneath or, at the very least, keep bodies intact. It's going to take the thousands of rescuers here, um, not, not just the United States, but it's going to take a collaborative effort of all the rescue teams here. People are actually just hoping to find anybody, even if they're dead, so they can bury them. And that's uh, very important, too. The teams do this as bereaved families look on, watching their every move. I swear I have lost my days and nights, he says in tears. Our sorrow is great. While he waits, he prays for the four members of his extended family to emerge and remembers the terror of waking up to the sway of his own building. Our building was bending like this, but unlike this one, his building did not break apart. Yeah. Los Angeles County civil engineers are on the site with USAID to help the Turkish government sort out which buildings have light damage, major damage, or which need to be demolished. I think it would be okay to live here. Um, you would? Yeah. I think, you know, from this viewpoint, the main concern is actually the building next to it, falling on top of it. We are there when the owner of an apartment building approaches asking whether it's safe for her to live here again. And engineer Hannon goes with her inside. While the homeowner decided she was too afraid to stay in her building, despite Hannon saying it was assessed as being safe, others Hannon has met are relieved to hear an assessment like that. A lot of them that we've gone in are actually doing well. And once we tell those people that, they'll start crying, give us hugs, and it's heartbreaking. But to be able to tell someone your house is safe and it kept you safe during this, you know, it's, it's something we can help with, 
something small we can do. Over 6,000 structures we put eyes on just to assess at a very quick glance. The findings of civil engineers are then put into a grid created by Los Angeles County Fire. So we can see where rescue is needed. Even in the disaster zone, children find a way to soothe themselves, despite the grief that continues to weigh heavy on everyone here. Sarah Seidner, CNN, Adiyaman, Turkey. Okay, coming up here on First Move, fresh from announcing a massive $1.8 billion aid package for Turkey, the president of the World Bank announces his departure later this year. David Malpass joins us to discuss that decision and what is set to be a very busy few months before he hands over the baton. That exclusive interview coming up, plus Chatterley Chats, Chat GPT and more with Dan Ives. And um, yeah, there wasn't too much human intelligence on show from either of us. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Now, one of my strongest takeaways from my discussions at the World Economic Forum was that we're on a precipice, a fundamental reform in the way that big institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund will operate. It seems that their biggest shareholders, and I'm talking about countries like Germany and the United States, among many others, are ready to shake up the business model. And that means perhaps accept some losses, take on more measured risk and scale up or leverage finance in order to better tackle the world's biggest challenges. And of course, the World Bank is going to be a crucial part of that change over the coming years. And now the hunt is on for the leader that will help drive that change after current president David Malpass announced his plans to step down in June of this year. And that's almost a year early. Now, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen praised Malpass for his service and efforts helping low-income nations achieve debt sustainability through debt reduction. His resignation also comes as the bank announces a $1.8 billion package for Turkey to assist with recovery and relief efforts. It's also preparing to co-host vital discussions on debt reduction for lower income nations around the G20 meetings next week. And I'm pleased to say David Malpass joins us now. David, always a pleasure to have you on the show. And I have to say that sets up for an incredibly busy six months to come. But I do want to start by talking about your announcement and the decision and the timing of your decision. Talk us through it. Uh, hi, Julia. Uh, the The bank's been really um, going on all cylinders. You know, there's been a big uh, a surge of commitments, both for COVID and then for uh, for the, the, the post-Ukraine spillovers. Uh, and so I feel like the bank is in a very good spot and I'm, I'm personally in a good spot to look for new challenges. Um, what, what we've, what we've um, managed to uh, achieve uh, is a solidification of our finances. So we're in very good shape. Uh, the big expansion of our commitments, we're up 40% from the, from the previous averages. Uh, and we have had two big uh, IDA replenishments, as you know, which are so important for the poorest countries. We're pushing forward on uh, the debt issues, on the climate issues, and very importantly, on the country programs and the issues facing individual countries. Uh, again, I'll, I'll emphasize especially the poorest countries where food and uh, health uh, and energy shortages are all pressing uh, needs for those countries. So I feel the bank is in a very successful spot and it's a good time to make the transition. 
I, I described it as tumultuous the last um, four years that you've taken the helm and, and led the bank through, and as you've said, um, the COVID-19 pandemic, economic crisis, the recovery from that, high inflation, you name it, never mind the challenges, of course, with, with longer term issues like poverty, like food security, like climate change that some of the poorest nations in the world still face. And I know many of these issues you're personally incredibly passionate about. Um, but it does tie to, I think, the fundamental shift that we're, we're likely to see, or at least has been hinted by the head of the IMF, the UN Secretary General in particular, in my conversations over the past few weeks. And the, and the next sort of five years, one to five years, is going to fundamentally, I think, change the way that big institutions like the World Bank operate. Is this you also saying, look, I want to allow the next person to, to, to drive that over the next year, but of course, uh, over the next five years too. The timing feels right, I think, in that regard. Is that also part of what you're saying here? Uh, that, that's part of it, but I really think we're at a good turning point uh, for for new efforts, uh, and uh, we've succeeded in a lot of the things that we set out to do. So I'm pleased with the with the timing. As we look forward, uh, the uh, developing world is facing this uh, giant uh, shortage of capital uh, and of energy uh, and of uh, of uh, growth potential, and so I think that's an issue that the world's going to be p facing for years. You know, I started in directly in uh, uh, public sector in 1984 with work on the World Bank. Uh, we set up the Environment Division in the capital increase of 1987. And so the bank's gone through lots of evolutions. They're, they're really important to the way the world operates. And I think we're at a good time uh, for, for the bank to be uh, even more engaged in global public goods. That that brings in these financing mechanisms that uh, that we've had lots of discussions on. You know, we've been going full speed at the at the World Bank over the last three or four months on ways to expand the the resources that are available to the developing world. One of the big ones, and I think the world needs to discuss it, is the idea of trust funds that will be used for concessional resources, specifically in the climate space. As you look to the, the the billions, the really hundreds of billions of dollars of need in the climate space, uh, I think there will be and needs to be a mechanism for channeling those resources, and that's part of the discussion now. I, I'm just I, I wrote down 1984, and I have to say, on, between my on-air discussions with you and also private discussions, I know you're no less energized, I think, than you were back in 1984 to, to tackle some of these challenges. Um, you mentioned climate, and, and I think that has been one of the tension points. And I think, or at least, and again, you and I have discussed it, I think there will be people that look at this and say, in some way that you've been pushed to make this decision, and you certainly don't sound like you've been pushed. But I guess I'd ask, David, if you have any regrets of your, of your time over the last um, four years and, and anything that you would change about your your leadership uh you know far from regrets it's been a great it's an amazing time the people at the world bank have been uh have been great the i think the governance system works very well uh and so we've we've achieved what uh, many of the things i wanted to and uh there the, you you know we have to recognize it's just been an, an intense four years I'll, it, yeah. it will end up being um four four and a quarter years uh when as i'm leaving uh and that puts uh uh, that that just is time. I think 
I think it's really important that uh, institutions have energy, uh, new energy, and that's a, this is a good time for the World Bank to do that. So no regrets at all. In fact, uh, I was very pleased. I, I, I uh, talked with my board of directors yesterday, and they gave a long ovation. You know, we've I, I thank them for all they've done. Remember, during COVID, we set up this special system for a fast track uh, approach to getting health aid to the to the countries, personal protective equipment, and then uh, big vaccination programs that were that were uh, some of the most important for the world in actually getting vaccines into people's arms, and that was made possible by flexibility within the organization plus uh, uh, the sizable resources we were able to get through Ida 19 and Ida 20. You know, we've had two record replenishments uh, in in my tenure in 2019 and in uh, 2022, I guess, uh, for Ida 20. And those have been uh, massively important for the poorest. And then we're also working on the resources, the big new resources that we got in the uh, capital increase of 2018 and the IFC capital increase in 2020. So the World Bank has these five institutions that I'm, I'm, I had each of each of them that are all uh, hitting on all cylinders right now. So I'm proud of that. And uh, it's uh, uh, it's a good time to make the transition. And um, we'll carry on because as, as I alluded to at the beginning of the interview, and you've already done so, the work doesn't stop and you're going to have an incredibly busy six months. Um, I think at the top of the immediate agenda is, is the decision to provide financing to, to Turkey, almost $1.8 billion. Um, can you talk to me about how quickly that money will be put to use? And I've seen some estimates to the tune of up to $8 billion in terms of the requirements for, for rebuilding and also support to those impacted. David, even at this stage, can you give us any, any sense of assessment of just how much money rebuilding and supporting Turkey could, could indeed require? The World Bank's role and capabilities in crises like this is is impressive. <clears throat> and as you know, we were very fast on Ukraine. We've been fast on the aid and we we push uh, a lot of uh, humanitarian assistance as well as development assistance uh, into regions that are hard hit. Um, and so with Turkey, um, the the office in uh, in Istanbul and in Ankara uh, were were uh, able to begin work right away as the earthquakes uh, hit. That means uh, rapid damage assessment and also beginning to transfer actual money from other programs into the the immediate relief. So $700 million begins flowing very quickly to the government of Turkey to support their efforts. And then we begin work right away, meaning within, within a matter of hours or days on a rebuilding uh, loan uh, that would be made that that may amount to a billion dollars, but over time we know that needs assessments will be greater than that. So mm -hmm. it shows the you know the importance of having an institution that can work across the various areas of uh, of uh, development assistance, whether that's the health needs, uh, that's the immediate food needs, uh, and that's uh, uh, the rebuilding needs that will come up. We're doing similar things or preparing for those in Ukraine. Uh, clearly, more money uh, has has flowed already to Ukraine. Some 16 billion dollars that we've dispersed ourselves uh, from 
front funds provided by various donors, especially from the United States. And so that relationship is really strong. And that's working also in the area of Turkey, where there's an international effort and partnership to uh, to to uh, to really support Turkey through these uh, horrible times. Yeah, and our hearts are with all those involved as the recovery efforts in Turkey continue and obviously the the efforts to support Ukraine continue as well. David, I'm conscious of time and something caught my attention that, again, I know you feel incredibly passionately about. And what I believe around the G20 is going to be the first meeting of its kind, which is to discuss um, debt relief or debt reduction, um, a roundtable. And I know you're co-hosting it. And also what I hear on the sidelines, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that I think for the first time, nations like India, big creditor nations like China, and also private creditors, a crucial part of this discussion, are all going to be involved. Talk to me about the importance of this, because if we actually want to see action on helping lower and lower middle income nations provide some support to them, this is crucial. That's exactly right. So I think in order to have better growth, stronger growth for developing countries, there needs to be transparency in the debt relationships that they have with all the various creditors. And then for those countries that have unsustainable debt, there needs to be a successful, rather rapid process to reduce the the debt burden. That can be done through through uh, lengthening out uh, the debt payments at a low interest rate, you know, a, a very favorable reprofiling, or it can be done through actual debt reduction. So the purpose of the roundtable is to discuss that. I'll I'll, I'll co-chair with uh, with IMF and also India. In India this year is the head of the G20, so they'll help us uh, um, move the group along to actually discuss how do we speed up the process so that the the poorest countries can actually get to debt reduction or debt relief from their burdens. Zambia is in a uh, uh, very important spot where they need a memorandum of understanding, it's called, an MOU that actually shows how they could uh, reduce their debt. They've been at it for two years, and it's really time now to finish that job and get to uh, debt reduction there. Sri Lanka is important. It's it's uh, it's in a different situation because they've they've had a lot of eurobond kind of debt and uh, also heavy debt from China and uh, from India. Those need to participate. And I'm glad you mentioned the private sector. It's going to be critical that the private sector fully engage and and uh, be prepared to to lengthen and re- substantially reduce the net present value of their uh, payment uh, structures. That. The reason this is important is because the governments and the people of the countries uh, need the money for food, for health, for education, for nutrition, uh, these and for and for climate adaptation. These are all pressing needs, and they compete with the the uh, debt payments that the countries are being demanded that that are being demanded of the countries. There's got to be a better world system on this, and we're going to look for it. Yeah, it's one of the ways that we better tackle climate adaption and mitigation too. If you free up some of this money that's being paid in interest costs to do some of the things that will will help protect people too. David, very quickly, because I I don't want to ask a pointed question on this, whether it's private sector debt or China, indeed, who's become a big creditor. Are they open to having a discussion about debt write-offs or do you think it's just going to be extending the length of the debt, the maturity of the debt? 
the word write-off is a loaded loaded I know, word. So that's I why I asked. To be, uh, well, I, I think what the creditors are discussing and should be discussing is how to meaningfully reduce the debt so that countries' debt burdens are sustainable. That's critical because then the country can bring in new investment and actually pay back debt service over a long period of time. So uh, when when you, you know, in the 1980s, I was heavily involved in the Latin debt crisis, and that got to a point where where there were options for the various creditors so they could have burden sharing that fit their needs. That meant some of them did write-offs, but some of them did long extensions of the debt. So those are on the table for the current process, and there'll be m many more options that are available to creditors, but that gives a fair burden sharing. And vital in this, as I said, is participation by by all of the official and the uh, commercial creditors. Uh, and and that and so far, the private sector has been sta standing away from this process, yes. and I think needs to be drawn in earlier and uh, more fully into the process. We'll be trying to do that. Yeah, it's a huge moment to bring all these people together, um, David, and um, we're very aware of it. Um, I was going to ask you what comes after June, but I can tell you you're actively engaged and it's too early for that question. So I'll save it till we speak again. Um, always a pleasure. David Malpass, the president faster, of the World Bank. Gro faster global growth will be needed. I know. <laughs> nice to talk with you. As always. Thank you, sir. We'll speak soon. Welcome back to First Move. Lots more to get to this hour, including the chat GPT bot that puts me on the spot, kind of. I'll discuss my first encounter with generative AI with tech analyst Dan Ives in just a moment's time. We'll get his take on whether bots are a fad or whether their future is ironclad. And from artificial intelligence to inflation data relevance, new numbers showing prices at the U.S. factory gate rising by a greater than expected seven-tenths of a percent in January month over month. That's compared to a drop in prices that we saw back in December. Higher energy costs, the big culprit there. Inflation data once again going in the opposite direction of what the Federal Reserve wants to see. And the market reaction, as you can see, not good either. The major U.S. averages all trading lower. The fear, of course, is that rates or interest rates will have to continue to push higher to tame those prices. The Nasdaq set to break a three-day session winning streak. In the meantime, France is enduring a fifth day of mass protests this year over pension reform. And the country's unions are already calling for a wider strike on March the 7th, something they say will bring the country to a, quote, complete standstill. Melissa Bell joins us now with the details from Paris. Melissa, oh, I can see the crowds building around you. Just for my audience, just be clear on what we're talking about fundamentally with this pension reform. I believe it's retiring from not 62 years old, but pushing it to 64 years old in France. It seems young to me. That's right, Julia. And that is proving remarkably controversial here in France. By Friday, tomorrow midnight, will be the last day of parliamentary debate on this measure that Emmanuel Macron had vowed to bring in when he was first elected in 2017. Once he's had to back down under protests from the street because of COVID, this time he's decided that 2023 is the year he's going to get this particular reform through. But as you can see, what we've been seeing is not just difficult parliamentary pro to progress with more than 20,000 amendments to this controversial bill already, but days and days of protests. This is the fifth day of protests and of strike across the country since the start of the year over this particular issue, Julia, and it's not over yet. 
today the numbers are slightly down. Air traffic is uh, a little bit uh, uh, bothered. We're seeing also uh, difficulties on the trains, but the metro lines are running. It is March 7th when the unions have really vowed to bring the country to a standstill once again in the hope that they're going to get Emmanuel Macron to back down. He's vowed, Julia, that he will see this through. His plan is, and it's fairly ambitious when you consider how difficult it's been so far from the street and in terms of the parliamentary progress, is to get this bill on the books by the summer so that this reform can be in place by September. Julia. Yeah, he may not have public opinion on his side. The question is, does he have support in Parliament? Melissa, um, we shall see. Thank you for joining us there, and well done for speaking over those speakers there. Melissa Bell, live from Paris. OK, coming up here on First Move, presidential praise. What's behind President Biden's friendly tweet about Tesla CEO Elon Musk? The details next. Welcome back to First Move. President Biden offering rare praise for Elon Musk after Tesla agreed to open part of its charging stations to non-Tesla vehicles. The president tweeted, in building our EV charging network, we have to ensure that as many chargers work for as many drivers as possible. To that end, Elon Musk will open a big part of Tesla's network up to all drivers. In response, Musk said, thank you. Tesla is happy to support other EVs via our supercharger network. That's Musk with his Tesla hat on today. I think we can show a day after he had his Twitter one on saying he wants to hire his successor as CEO by the end of this year. Joining us now, Dan Ives. He's the Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Dan, it's always a pleasure. Oh, I have so much to discuss with you. Um, let's start with Tesla. It shouldn't be rare praise from President Biden, by the way, but is this important the acknowledgement, perhaps, that the charging network and infrastructure for Tesla will be opened up to others. It's all additive. Well, it's important. Remember, this goes back to the snub at the White House where Musk mm -hmm. didn't get the invite going back to last year. But it just comes down to the, the supercharging network is very important, not just for Tesla, but for overall EV. I mean, with this green tidal wave that we're seeing play out, we need massive uh, charging station build-outs. And I think this is a positive in terms of what we're seeing in terms of this next leg of this EV build-out happening in the United States. Yeah, if you don't know where the charging infrastructure is, you're concerned about charging infrastructure around the country or wherever you live, then you're going to be less inclined to, to buy an EV. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, in a note on the 6th of February, you said that you thought the Twitter soap opera was sort of slipping into the background and it was becoming more of a demand story, a particularly Chinese demand story. Um, let's be clear for, for Tesla. Does that still hold in light of the tweet from Elon that perhaps he's going to be the CEO of Twitter until the end of this year? It's sort of dragging on. Yeah, well, Julie, and, and me and you have talked about this a lot over the last six months. I mean, clearly, the, 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 that was a firestorm that we saw late last year. But I do think Musk toned down some of the rhetoric, read the room. And, and we've seen much more of a focus on Tesla. And, and March 1st, they'll have the investor day. The price cuts have been a home run success in China. I mean, we believe that spurred demand significantly. Right now, three of every four Chinese buyers and for EV based on what we're seeing looking for a Tesla. And I think that's important. And it's a big part of what we've seen with the stock this year is that the demand story really coming back despite the macro. Wow. Just repeat that statistic again. So according to the surveys that you're doing in China, three out of four 
potential buyers want a Tesla? Can they also afford it, I guess, is another question, or is that a moot point? Look, I mean, clearly that's going to be an issue in terms of as price points come down. But that's why you see some of these price cuts, price increases. Tesla's right. trying to find the equilibrium. But we've seen even in the U.S., Model Y is essentially sold out for the quarter. So wow. that, you know, that's really a very important fact that we've seen with that Tesla story this year. Yeah, and provided, I guess, you can scale production, it provides meaningful support for, for margins as well, if you're a Tesla investor looking at this. Well, I think the important thing here, and it goes back to the quarter, they're able to do this because of the global scale. Margins are much better than anything else in the auto landscape by miles. So that's also why they get treated as disruptive technology stock. And in our opinion, I mean, this is a stock that will continue to move higher based on demand and that margin story holding up. You're starting to see Musk put that red cape back on and superhero status after really what was, uh, <laughs> you know, I think, a nightmare situation last year. Yeah, the cape went missing for a while. Um, very quickly on this price target. Yeah, so 225 price target, bull case $250. And I think March 1st could be a catalyst down in Austin. Okay, we have to talk about AI and the AI arms race that we've seen. Oh, there we go. We're showing your price targets, though, for our audience that is interested. Um, let's talk about the AI arms race and um, what you've said. Microsoft is, is winning and it left Google searching for answers, literally. It's been interesting. My, my experiences with these chatbots of... I've also left me wondering if we're moving too quickly on this. Look, I mean, the technology is moving at lightning speed. But, but ultimately, in Redmond, when the Dell is done with ChatGPT, that was the first shot across the bow. I mean, there's a Game mm. of Thrones battle. Microsoft's clearly winning. You look at Google last week rushing that out. That was a black eye. I mean, that's essentially like showing someone a car at a dealership and the engine doesn't work. But I think we're, we're still in the early stages of where this is all playing out in big tech. You know, I asked the president of Microsoft when I was in Davos if this had the potential to be a, a Google killer. I feel like the addition of this for Bing, which is the search engine, of course, for, for Microsoft, um, just on a relative size basis in terms of Bing versus the Google search function means they only have upside and, and Google only really has market share to lose. What do you think? Google killer? Well, I, I, I think, Julie, you, yeah, I think you hit it nail on the head because it's not about Google. Google's going to continue to be the search leader. Yeah. But if Bing starts to gain share, you're talking about every percentage point when it's two billion of incremental advertising dollars. That's why what's happening right now. Microsoft gaining more and more share there. You expand that AI. And it just speaks to why, you know, right now they're in the left lane of innovation, Microsoft, in terms of what they're doing. And that's really an important thing investors are focused on. Yeah. So an important catalyst for their stock. What about some of the other players, though? I mean, we can bring in Amazon. We can bring in uh, Meta. We can bring in Apple, Baidu. We don't even have to stay in the United States. Everybody's going to be looking to be talking about this as a catalyst for their share price, irrespective, surely, of what they've got going on. It's sort of a blockchain-esque moment. It I would say, okay, there have been other hype cycles, you know, as you've talked about. This is not a hype cycle. I mean, this is more uh -huh. of a Game of Thrones battle going after $800 billion of opportunity over the coming years. You saw Baidu come out with their announcement. I think Apple's the one to put a circle around. I mean, they've spent what I believe is 8 to $10 billion on AI technology. I think we're going to see more around that this summer. 
you got a 2 billion iOS install base around the world. I think that's really the big opportunity for Cupertino. But Jazzy and Amazon, they're not just going to watch this from a park bench. I mean, they're also going to you know, get into this game. And this is significant. There's individual players like C3, Soundhound, and others, a real market that could be a game changer. Dan, 30 seconds. You sound quite excited about the tech sector, and it's been a little bit, to some degree, in the doldrums, given rising rate concerns and the impact that has. Um, this remains a long-term play, a good long-term play. Look, last year was a horror show you yeah. know, for, for tech, but I think we're seeing a much different environment this year, better than feared, hard landing to a soft landing to no landing. And Look, the New York City cab driver was bearish on tech stocks this year. And I think that's really the opportunity, <laughs> in my opinion, for high quality tech. <laughs> when your postman's telling you that this is a bad buy, perhaps it's a counter indicator or even me. Hey, let's be honest. Dan, always a pleasure. Thank you so Thanks much for, for chatting me. to us. Dan Ives there, Managing Director at Wedbush Securities. Okay, stay with CNN coming up. Embattled FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is heading back to court today with prosecutors accusing him of going online in a way the government can't track. We'll have all the details next. Welcome back to First Move and what a difference a year makes. In 2022, FTX ads were featured prominently during the Super Bowl. Well, now the company's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, is in hot water for using a VPN to watch the NFL final. He's heading back to court today as prosecutors ask a judge to limit his access to cell phones, computers and the internet, accusing Bankman-Fried of finding loopholes in his bail terms. Kara Scannell joins us now with all the details. Great to have you with us. I have to say, I'm not so sure that prosecutors are all that worried about him using a, a VPN to access the Super Bowl. It's more about what else he's doing that they can't track, perhaps. Yeah, exactly, Julie. I mean, that's the thing. They're concerned that he could access other websites, that he could contact people, that he could even transfer cryptocurrencies without them being able to detect that. But it all stems from him using this VPN to watch the Super Bowl while he is on home detention at his parents' house in Palo Alto. Prosecutors point out that the Super Bowl is pretty easy to watch. You don't have to use a VPN to do it. Uh, but this all brings Bankman-Fried back in court today. And, you know, he used this VPN just days after appearing before this same judge last week, where the judge expressed concern over Bankman-Fried's use of encrypted apps and features on apps that allow them to delete messages after they're sent. So the judge very concerned about his ability to circumvent any kind of oversight. Uh, now, Bankman-Fried in the crosshairs again by using the VPN. So now, you know, what prosecutors are saying to the judge is they really want to now significantly restrict his access to just one cell phone, to one computer, and both of those being subject to search if they have any suspicion that he violated these bail terms. And prosecutors saying that, you know, even though they have tried to work with Bankman Free's attorneys, they say that he has shown a motivation to circumvent the ability for the government to monitor him and also to find loopholes in these bail terms. So they're saying that he should be limited to using just SMS texting, so not iMessage on a cell phone, for instance, uh, can only use voice calls uh, and can only use his Gmail account. Uh, they also said he could use Zoom, but just to be 
in contact with his attorneys to prepare his defense, but they really want to curtail his ability to use any other communication apps. All of those were on the table last week. Prosecutors are saying now they want that off the table this week. Now, Bankman-Fried's attorneys say that all these actions he has done, such as the VPN, including reaching out to some former employees, they say that was all benign. They're asking the judge for much more lenient conditions, but it will all come down in a court later this afternoon. Julia? Yeah, and we'll see what happens. And just for those viewers, it might be confused. VPN, virtual private network that encrypts your activity on the internet. I just realized we use that acronym a lot, and I'm not sure we, uh, we explained it. Kara, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. And finally, from a one-time crypto maven to an owl who's left his haven. Eurasian eagle owl Flaco has flown the coop at New York's Central Park Zoo and appears to be enjoying his life on the run. Should he remain free as a bird? Jeannie Moose reports. There's a new star in Central Park and he's right out of central casting. Lately, bird watchers only have eyes for owls. And some fans on David Barrett's birder blog are saying, Let Flacco be free. In the beginning of February, Flacco escaped from his exhibit at the Central Park Zoo after someone cut through the stainless steel mesh. His enclosure didn't have room to do much flying, and his first night of freedom, the NYPD almost corralled him on a Fifth Avenue sidewalk. Well, that was a hoot, the NYPD tweeted when the owl flew off. I was worried that it wouldn't be able to fly, but it spread its wings and flew to the nearest set of trees. Zoo officials were most worried that Flacco didn't know how to hunt since he's always had his meals delivered. They tried to lure him using a white rat in a cage, hoping he'd get trapped in the wiry filaments on top. The zoo team was rushing with nets to get Flacco, but Flacco was too fast. And now fans are snapping photos of Flacco catching his own dinner. Rats. <laughs> Rats on the menu. Barrett says the owl has gone from zero hunting skills to decent hunting skills. That's just a, an incredible transformation. He hangs out in Central Park, charming New Yorkers with hooting so low it requires subtitles. Like other creatures not native to Central Park, Flacco, the Eurasian eagle owl, has become one of the select few. And they make it. They survive, they thrive, and they become stars. If I can make it there. Flacco can make it anywhere. Genimos, CNN. New York. New York. I love that story. Freedom for Flacco. I've been bird watching or bird spotting to see if I can see him. Not yet is the answer. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.